Chapter Seventeen, Part Three of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Seventeen, Part Three. The Galapagos Archipelago. The botany of this group is fully as interesting as the zoology. Dr. J. Hooker will soon publish, in the Linnean Transactions, a full account of the flora, and I am much indebted to him for the following details. Of flowering plants there are, as far as at present is known, a 185 species, and 40 cryptogamic species, making altogether 225. Of this number I was fortunate enough to bring home 193. Of the flowering plants, a hundred are new species, and are probably confined to this archipelago. Dr. Hooker conceives that, of the plants not so confined, at least ten species found near the cultivated ground at Charles Island have been imported. It is, I think, surprising that more American species have not been introduced naturally, considering that the distance is only five hundred and six hundred miles from the continent and that, according to Colnett, page 58, driftwood, bamboos, canes, and the nuts of a palm are often washed on the southeastern shores. The proportion of a hundred flowering plants out of a hundred and eighty-three, or a hundred and seventy-five excluding the imported weeds, being new, is sufficient, I conceive, to make the Galapagos archipelago a distinct botanical province. But this flora is not nearly so peculiar as that of St. Helena, nor, as I am informed by Dr. Hooker, of Juan Ferdinand's. The peculiarity of the Galapagian flora is best shown in certain families. Thus there are twenty-one species of Compositae, of which twenty are peculiar to this archipelago. These belong to twelve genera and of these genera no less than ten are confined to this archipelago. Dr. Hooker informs me that the flora has an undoubtedly Western American character, nor can he detect in it any affinity with that of the Pacific. If, therefore, we accept the eighteen marine, the one freshwater, and one landshell, which have apparently come here as colonists from the central islands of the Pacific, and likewise the one distinct Pacific species of the Galapagian group of finches, we see that this archipelago, though standing in the Pacific Ocean, is zoologically part of America. If this character were owing merely to immigrants from America, there would be little remarkable in it. But we see that a vast majority of all the land animals, and that more than half of the flowering plants, are aboriginal productions. It was most striking to be surrounded by new birds, new reptiles, new shells, new insects, new plants, and yet by innumerable trifling details of structure, and even by the tones of voice and plumage of the birds, to have the temperate plains of Patagonia, or rather the hot dry deserts of northern Chile, vividly brought before my eyes. Why, on these small points of land, which within the late geological period must have been covered by the ocean, which are formed by basaltic lava, and therefore differ in geological character from the American continent, 
and which are placed under a peculiar climate? Why were their aboriginal inhabitants, associated, I may add, in different proportions both in kind and number from those on the continent, and therefore acting on each other in a different manner? Why were they created on American types of organization? It is probable that the islands of the Cape de Verde group resemble, in all their physical conditions, far more closely the Galapagos Islands, than these latter physically resemble the coast of America. Yet the aboriginal inhabitants of the two groups are totally unlike, those of the Cape de Verde Islands bearing the impress of Africa, as the inhabitants of the Galapagos Archipelago are stamped with that of America. I have not as yet noticed by far the most remarkable feature in the natural history of this archipelago. It is that the different islands, to a considerable extent, are inhabited by a different set of beings. My attention was first called to this fact by the vice-governor, Mr. Lawson, declaring that the tortoises differed from the different islands, and that he could with certainty tell from which island any one was brought. I did not for some time pay sufficient attention to this statement, and I had already partially mingled together the collections from two of the islands. I never dreamed that islands, about fifty or sixty miles apart, and most of them in sight of each other, formed of precisely the same rocks, placed under a quite similar climate, rising to a nearly equal height, would have been differently tenanted. But we shall soon see that this is the case. It is the fate of most voyagers, no sooner to discover what is most interesting in any locality than they are hurried from it. But I ought, perhaps, to be thankful that I obtained sufficient materials to establish this most remarkable fact in the distribution of organic beings. The inhabitants, as I have said, state that they can distinguish the tortoises from the different islands, and that they differ not only in size, but in other characters. Captain Porter has described those from Charles, and from the nearest island to it, namely Hood Island, as having their shells in front thick and turned up like a Spanish saddle, whilst the tortoises from James Island are rounder, blacker, and have a better taste when cooked. M. Bibron, moreover, informs me that he has seen what he considers two distinct species of tortoise from the Galapagos, but he does not know from which islands. The specimens that I brought from three islands were young ones, and, probably owing to this cause, neither Mr. Gray nor myself could find in them any specific differences. I have remarked that the marine Amplioryncus was larger at Albemarle Island than elsewhere, and M. Bibron informs me that he has seen two distinct aquatic species of this genus, so that the different islands probably have their representative species or races of the Amblyrhynchus as well as of the tortoise. My attention was first thoroughly aroused by comparing together the numerous specimens shot by myself and several other parties on board of the mocking thrushes, when, to my astonishment, I discovered that all those from Charles Island belong to one species, Mimus trifasciatus, all from Albemarle Island to M. Parvulus, and all from James and Chatham Islands between which two other islands are situated as connecting links, belong to M. melanontis. These two latter species are closely allied, 
and would, by some ornithologists, be considered as only well-marked races or varieties. But the Mimus trifasciatus is very distinct. Unfortunately, most of the specimens of the finch tribe were mingled together, but I have strong reasons to suspect that some of the species of the subgroup, Geospeza, are confined to separate islands. If the different islands have their representatives of Geospeza, it may help to explain the singularly large number of the species of the subgroup in this one small archipelago. And, as a probable consequence of their numbers, the perfectly graduated series in the size of their beaks. Two species of the subgroup Cactornis and two of the Camarynchus were procured in the archipelago, and of the numerous specimens of these two subgroups shot by four collectors at James Island, all were found to belong to one species of each, whereas the numerous specimens shot either on Chatham or Charles Island, for the two sets were mingled together, all belonged to the two other species. Hence we may feel almost sure that these islands possess their respective species of these two subgroups. In land shells, this law of distribution does not appear to hold good. In my very small collection of insects, Mr. Waterhouse remarks that of those which were ticketed with their locality, not one was common to any two of the islands. If we now turn to the flora, we shall find the aboriginal plants of the different islands wonderfully different. I give all the following results on the high authority of my friend, Dr. J. Hooker. I may premise that I indiscriminately collected everything in flower on the different islands, and fortunately kept my collections separate. Too much confidence, however, must not be placed in the proportional results. As the small collections, brought home by some other naturalists, though in some respects confirming the results, plainly show that much remains to be done in the botany of this group. The leguminosae, moreover, has as yet been only approximately worked out. Name of Ireland, James. Total number of species, 71. Number of species found in other parts of the world, 33. Number of species confined to the Galapagos Archipelago, 38. Number confined to the one island, 30. Number of species confined to the Galapagos Archipelago, but found on more than one island, 8. Name of Ireland, Albemarle. Total number of species, 4. Number of species found in other parts of the world, 18. Number of species confined to the Galapagos Archipelago, 26. Number confined to the one island, 22. Number of species confined to the Galapagos Archipelago, but found on more than the one island, 4. Name of Ireland, Chatham. Total number of species, 32. Number of species found in other parts of the world, 16. Number of species confined to the Galapagos Archipelago, 16. Number confined to the one island, 12. Number of species confined to the Galapagos Archipelago, but found on more than the one island, 4. Name of Ireland, Charles. Total number of species, 68. Number of species found in other parts of the world, 39, or 29, if the probably imported plants be subtracted. 
Number of species confined to the Galapagos archipelago, 29. Number confined to the one island, 21. Number of species confined to the Galapagos archipelago, but found on more than the one island, 8. Hence we have the truly wonderful fact that in James Island, of the 38 Galapagian plants, or those found in no other part of the world, thirty are exclusively confined to this one island, and in Albemarle Island, of the twenty-six aboriginal Galapagian plants, twenty-two are confined to this one island, that is, only four are at present known to grow in the other islands of the archipelago, and so on, as shown in the above table, with the plants from Chatham and Charles Island. This fact will, perhaps, be rendered even more striking, by giving a few illustrations. Thus, Scalasia, a remarkable arborescent genus of the Composite, is confined to the archipelago. It is six species, one from Chatham, one from Albemarle, one from Charles Island, two from James Island, and the sixth from one of the three latter islands, but it is not known from which. Not one of these six species grows on any two islands, Again, Euphrobria, a mundane or widely distributed genus, has here eight species, of which seven are confined to the archipelago, and not one found on any two islands. Acalypha, Boaria, both mundane genera, have respectively six and seven species, none of which have the same species on two islands, with the exception of one Boaria, which does occur on two islands. The species of the Composite are particularly local, and Dr. Hooker has furnished me with several other most striking illustrations of the differences of the species on the different islands. He remarks that this law of distribution holds good, both with those genera confined to the archipelago, and those distributed in other quarters of the world. In like manner we have seen that the different islands have their proper species of the mundane genus of tortoise, and of the widely distributed American genus of the mocking-thrush, as well as of two of the Galapagian subgroups of finches, and almost certainly of the Galapagian genus Amblyorhynchus. The distribution of the tenants of this archipelago would not be nearly so wonderful if, for instance, one island had a mocking-thrush, and a second island some other quite distinct genus. If one island had its genus of lizard, and a second island another distinct genus, or none whatever. Or, if the different islands were inhabited, not by representative species of the same genera of plants, but by totally different genera, as does to a certain extent hold good. For, to give one instance, a large berry-bearing tree at James Island has no representative species in Charles Island. But it is the circumstance that several of the islands possesses their own species of the tortoise, mocking-thrush, finches, and numerous plants. These species are in the same general habits, occupying analogous situations, and obviously filling the same place in the natural economy of this archipelago that strikes me with wonder. It may be suspected that some of these representative species, at least in the case of the tortoise and of some of the birds, may hereafter prove to be only well-marked races. 
but this would be of equally great interest to the philosophical naturalist. I have said that most of the islands are in sight of each other. I may specify that Charles Island is fifty miles from the nearest part of Chatham Island, and thirty-three miles from the nearest part of Albemarle Island. Chatham Island is sixty miles from the nearest part of James Island, but there are two intermediate islands between them, which were not visited by me. James Island is only ten miles from the nearest part of Albemarle Island, but the two points where the collections were made are thirty-two miles apart. I must repeat that neither the nature of the soil, nor height of the land, nor the climate, nor the general character of the associated beings, and therefore their action one on another, can differ much in the different islands. If there be any sensible difference in their climates, it must be between the windward group, namely Charles and Chatham Islands, and that to the leeward. But there seems to be no corresponding difference in the productions of these two halves of the archipelago. The only light which I can throw on this remarkable difference in the inhabitants of the different islands is that very strong currents of the sea running in a westerly and west-northwesterly direction must separate, as far as transportal by the sea is concerned, the southern islands from the northern ones. And between these northern islands a strong northwest current was observed, which must effectually separate James and Albemarle Island. As the archipelago is free to a most remarkable degree from gales of wind, neither the birds, insects, nor lighter seeds would be blown from island to island. And lastly, the profound depth of the ocean between the islands, and their apparent recent, in a geological sense, volcanic origin, render it highly unlikely that they were ever united. And this, probably, is a far more important consideration than any other, with respect to the geographical distribution of their inhabitants. Reviewing the facts here given, one is astonished at the amount of creative force, if such an expression may be used, displayed on these small, barren, and rocky islands, and still more so at its diverse yet analogous action on points so near each other. I have said that the Galapagos archipelago might be called a satellite attached to America, but it should rather be called a group of satellites, physically similar, organically distinct, yet intimately related to each other, and all related in a marked, though much lesser degree, to the great American continent. I will conclude my description of the natural history of these islands by giving an account of the extreme tameness of the birds. This disposition is common to all the terrestrial species, namely to the mocking thrushes, the finches, wrens, tyrant catchers, the dove, and carrion buzzard. All of them are often approached sufficiently near to be killed with a switch, and sometimes, as I myself tried, with a cap or hat. A gun here is almost superfluous, for with the muzzle I pushed a hawk off the branch of a tree. One day, whilst lying down, a mocking thrush alighted on the edge of a pitcher, made of the shell of a tortoise, which I held in my hand, and began very quietly to sip the water. It allowed me to lift it from the ground while seated on the vessel. I often tried, and very nearly succeeded, in catching these birds by their legs. 
Formerly the birds appear to have been even tamer than at present. Cowley, in the year 1684, says that the turtle-doves were so tame that they would often alight on our hats and arms, so as that we could take them alive, they not fearing man, until such time as some of our company did fire at them, whereby they were rendered more shy. Dampier, also, in the same year, says that a man, in a morning's walk, might kill six or seven dozen of these doves. At present, although certainly very tame, they do not alight on people's arms, nor do they suffer themselves to be killed in such large numbers. It is surprising that they have not become wilder, for these islands during the last a hundred and fifty years have been frequently visited by buccaneers and whalers, and the sailors, wandering through the woods in search of tortoises, always take cruel delight in knocking down the little birds. These birds, although now still more persecuted, do not readily become wild. In Charles Island, which had then been colonized about six years, I saw a boy sitting by a well with a switch in his hand, with which he killed the doves and finches as they came to drink. He had already procured a little heap of them for his dinner, and he said that he had constantly been in the habit of waiting by this well for the same purpose. It would appear that the birds of this archipelago, not having as yet learnt that man is a more dangerous animal than the tortoise or the amblyorhynchus, disregard him, in the same manner as in England shy birds, such as magpies, disregard the cows and horses grazing in our fields. The Falkland Islands offer a second instance of birds of the similar disposition. The extraordinary tameness of the little Opteorhynchus has been remarked by Pernity, Lesson, and other voyagers. It is not, however, peculiar to that bird. The Polyborus, Snipe, Upland, and Lowland Goose, Thrush, Bunting, and even some true hawks, are all more or less tame. As the birds are so tame there, where foxes, hawks, and owls occur, we may infer that the absence of all rapacious animals at the Galapagos is not the cause of their tameness here. The upland geese at the Falklands show, by the precaution they take in building on the islets, that they are aware of their danger from the foxes, but they are not by this rendered wild towards man. This tameness of the birds, especially of the waterfowl, is strongly contrasted with the habits in Tierra del Fuego, where, for ages past, they have been persecuted by the wild inhabitants. In the Falklands, the sportsman may sometimes kill more of the upland geese in one day than he can carry home, whereas in Tierra del Fuego it is nearly as difficult to kill one as it is in England to shoot the common wild goose. In the time of Pernity, 1763, all the birds there appear to be much tamer than at present. He states that the Opteorhynchus would almost perch on his finger, and that with a wand he killed ten in half an hour. At that period the birds must have been about as tame as they are now at the Galapagos. They appear to have learnt caution more slowly at these latter islands than at the Falklands, where they have proportionate means of experience. For besides frequent visits from vessels, these islands have been at intervals, colonized during the entire period. Even formerly, when all the birds were so tame, it was impossible, 
by paternity's account, to kill the black next one, a bird of passage, which probably brought with it the wisdom learnt in foreign countries. I may add that, according to Dubois, all the birds at Bourbon, in 1571-72, to with the exception of the flamingos and geese, were so extremely tame that they could be caught by the hand or killed in any number with a stick. Again, at Tristan d'Achna, in the Atlantic, Carmichael states that the only two land-birds, a thrush and a bunting, were so tame as to suffer themselves to be caught with a hand-net. From these several facts we may, I think, conclude first that the wildness of the birds with regard to man is a particular instinct directed against him, and not dependent upon any general degree of caution arising from other sources of danger. Secondly, that it is not acquired by individual birds in a short time, even when much persecuted, but that in the course of successive generations it becomes hereditary. With domestic animals we are accustomed to see new mental habits or instincts acquired, or rendered hereditary. But with animals in a state of nature, it must always be more difficult to discover instincts of acquired hereditary knowledge. In regard to the wildness of birds towards man, there is no way of accounting for it, except as an inherited habit. Comparatively few young birds, in any one year, have been injured by man in England. Yet almost all, even nestlings, are afraid of him. Many individuals, on the other hand, both at the Galapagos and at the Falklands, have been pursued and injured by man, and yet have not learned a saltuary dread of him. We may infer from these facts what havoc the introduction of any new beast of prey must cause in a country, before the instincts of the indigenous inhabitants have become adapted to the stranger's craft or power. End of chapter 17, part 3